0: Welcome to Life Centered, the podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, I'm joined by the delightful Betsy Hines. Betsy is an incredible artist who I just started following this past year. Her work uses the natural world as inspiration and fodder to evoke a sense of magic, a sense of place, and to build wonder in those who are lucky enough to cross the threshold into her worlds. Betsy describes herself in what I think is one of the best titles ever. She is a wondersmith. We talk about the benefits of asking bizarre questions, uh, the challenges and realities of encouraging people to explore what is often uncomfortable or new, the power of magic, edible poetry, and much, much more. Enjoy. So the studio that you're in, uh, could you tell me a little bit about it? I know you just moved into that space.
1: It's actually um, a glassblower studio that I've worked with in the past, and she decided to uh, divvy up her space. So now there is she's in there, and she does blown glass. And then there's another gal in there who works with a torch. And then I've got a corner um, claimed for me, and I've got I'll, I'll have my glass kiln down there. And I've been doing uh, kiln-formed glass and ceramic work, as well as occasionally blowing glass with Lisa, the studio owner. So it's pretty cool because it's it's like an all-ladies glass studio, which you don't see too many of those.
0: You know, I know a little bit about your work, and I'm a huge fan. But also, you do multiple different kinds of work. Could you describe the various different, I don't know, art forms that you work in?
1: Well, I'm really drawn to um, tactile mediums. So I, my favorites are glass and ceramic because you can make really functional work out of them that people enjoy touching and feeling and using. I, my teachers at art school always laughed at me because I cannot make a painting without like gluing <laughs> three-dimensional things onto it. I just I think in the medium of 3D, and I'm a really tactile person, so, those things combined mean that I like glass, ceramics, um, metals, fiber arts, that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> one of the things that I really found fascinating with glass blowing was I started. I went to one of these studio classes where they just do introductory glass blowing. Uh, this was over a decade ago. And it was. It was the experience of I wasn't in control of the glass. I had to work with it and it was in the moment and it there was a time limit to it in a way because it had to cool and you were just massaging it and trying to figure out and work with the medium. And in all my other work as sort of a scientist, I never really had that experience and and hours would flash by so quickly when I was doing glass blowing and it just was such a sort of intense focused moment that I would get into that sort of flow state and uh, it just lose all sense of time and and that was something that I absolutely loved about glass blowing um, what what is the experience like for you?
1: I mean I think you kind of hit it on the head there. Um, I started doing torch work when I was in high school and you know to do torch work you have obviously the torch and then, in one hand is the mandrel, the um, it's like a piece of like a steel rod, um, and you have to keep that turning. And then on the other hand is your rod of glass that you need to keep turning as well to keep the heat even. So it's kind of like learning how to drive a standard car. There's just a lot of things going on at once, and um, the amount of concentration it took to be evenly spinning two things at once and paying attention to the heat and Paying attention to the, the way the glass was dripping, or the way the glass was moving, um, was the best way for me to get into that like peaceful flow state. And as a teenager, it was definitely kind of an escape for me, uh, you know, a way to to feel grounded and focused and peaceful. So when I was uh, deciding on colleges, I knew that I needed to try it on a larger scale, or I'd always wonder what if. So I picked a college with a good glass program, which was actually in Canada. It was Alberta College of Art and Design. And from day 1 in glass blowing, I was completely hooked. It's it's a really interesting medium because it's it's so much harder to visualize how you're going to make a shape out of glass. Like you think, okay, I want to make a bowl, in ceramics you just pinch a bowl, but in glass it goes through, you know, Four or five different shapes of bubble before it even starts looking like a bowl, and it's just it's so uh, hands-on and so it requires so much focus that I really really love working with glass.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the surprising things I had is that it it really is hands-on with glass, even though it's this molten two thousand degree substance. You're uh, it's sort of shocking that you take like newspapers that are wet and literally use your hand to shape it or take these wooden things and shape it with the cups and all this other, it's a very tactile experience in making the glass, uh, which I was super surprised about given how sort of dangerous it feels.
1: Yeah, the, the wet newspaper is actually my favorite tool to use because it does feel like you're just like shaping 2000 degree glass with your hand. And all that's between it is, you know, maybe a quarter inch of soggy newspaper.
0: Right, which is amazing. It just seems like that shouldn't be possible. And it's just a little bit magical.
1: Yeah, I was definitely nervous the first time I tried that. And I was amazed. I've, I've never burnt my hand doing that in like the, oh gosh, like six or seven years I've been blowing glass never burnt my hand using the newspaper so it it is pretty magical how that cushion of steam protects your hand
0: and i kind of wanted to dive into the magical aspect of of some of this because one of the things that you've recently sort of started calling your work or your job could you describe your job you'll probably do a better job than i would
1: Um, So my my sort of elevator pitch is I design experiences for strangers and I invite them through all sorts of unconventional means like hiding invitations in the woods or tucking them into books for people, thumbing through books to discover or um, having a really niche group of people apply to attend. But each time my goal with these experiences is to... Uh, to give the guests a a more meaningful experience than just sort of a meal. So I always have a goal, like I want to focus on um, wonder and discovery or ultimate safety or, you know, a, a feeling of excitement or of nourishment. And I create the whole events myself. Like I'll make all of the serving vessels out of glass or ceramic I'll forage the ingredients um, from, you know, the coastline or the forests of the Pacific Northwest. I usually make the food. Occasionally I'll do collaborations, but I usually make the food. Think of the setting and design a ceremony for each event as well, just to add some structure to it and to make the event itself follow the arch of a story rather than just sort of fade in and fade out. And um, this summer, I started calling myself Wondersmith because I think that it is really the most accurate word for what I'm trying to do. Like the same way that a goldsmith uses gold to design their work, I, I use wonder uh, to shape what I do and how I do it. And um, I like having the title Wondersmith because it, it gets people curious. You know, they say, well, what is that? And then I have a chance to explain my art practice rather than have people sort of decide what I do before I tell them. When I was calling myself an event designer, people assumed I was a party planner and would say, oh, oh, can you plan my wedding before they really even knew what my work was about? And when I say I'm a glassblower, um, depending what state I'm in, there's a lot of assumptions. It's usually, oh, have you heard of Dale Chihuly? Or, oh, so you make bongs. And neither of those (laughs) things are... I don't really relate to either of them. (laughs) So it's nice to have a title that um, is a little bit more at the same time, open-ended and specific, if that makes sense.
0: It does. And I love the title Wondersmith. And so I think for me that, that title of Wondersmith, it's, it's you're working with wonder, both your own and with your audiences. And I, I don't know. So I guess I have a couple questions in there. One is, what what do you wonder about? What sort of strikes your, gets your wonderment going?
1: I'd say I've always been an incredibly curious person. And some of the questions I ask are maybe not questions that a lot of people ask. Or maybe they do, they just censor it a little more. But, you know, things like, Uh, Can I put that in my mouth? Will it kill me? Or (laughs) can this be prepared as food? Or can I make this more translucent? Or, you know, walking through the woods, I just, I have all of these sort of bizarre questions that pop into my head. And I think a lot of my work is exploring those. Um, For example, right now I'm working on, is it possible to design an entire meal that's blue without using food coloring? Just you know, natural ingredients. Um, When I was a kid, I I really explored the world through taste. My parents actually had poison control on speed dial (laughs) Uh, because everything (laughs) that looked interesting went into my mouth. And I would say that that hasn't really changed a whole lot, except, you know, now I know not to put poisonous things in my mouth. But I do – I still love trying new flavors, trying new combinations, getting to know an ingredient – in a lot of different ways and using that way, that sense of taste to get people to engage a little bit more deeply in an experience than just, you know, looking at a static piece of artwork on a plinth or hanging on the wall.
0: Uh, it's such a scary thing, tasting things. Um, and it's, it, there's a certain form of bravery there that, you know, when I look out at the world as a biologist, I know so something some some of the things that are out there but i don't really know much and i feel like we don't know a lot about what we can or can't eat and so for example like there are madrona trees everywhere around here and i'll walk around and pick up madrona berries and and sometimes i'll eat them and people around me think i'm crazy (laughs) um because it is scary and it's weird and people don't Know what's out there. And so, how do you learn about what's, I mean, b- besides just putting it in your mouth and seeing how you feel? It, is that what you do, or, or do you have a process for learning more about foraged foods?
1: Well, I, so I grew up uh, foraging a little bit. My family would always go out and find Morel mushrooms and pick huckleberries and you know various other wild plants but a few years ago i i apprenticed for an herbalist nearby named darcy williamson and we would go out in the woods together and she would introduce us to plants and tell us how they would be used medicinally and how they had been used culturally as food or as medicine in the past and while i don't really see myself as as becoming an herbalist i definitely got a lot out of that apprenticeship um just learning more about both about the plants themselves and about how to get to know them better and what resources to use and what books are helpful. I I definitely do not feed anything to anybody else that I'm not 100% sure is safe. And I tend to stick with a little bit more approachable flavors when I'm designing work to share with other people. My, my goal is to have this balance of getting people outside of their comfort comfort zones, but doing so comfortably, you know, like having something so cool and exciting just outside their comfort zone that they want to enter that new realm voluntarily rather than feeling anxious or, or pressured into it. And so that's a really fun balance to play with and a really fun balance to think about. And I think um, it, it applies to all aspects of the experience, including the food. So a lot of people who've come to my events have said, now I'm looking at the forest so differently. I just keep seeing food everywhere. I didn't know that there was so much you could eat in the woods. I didn't like, who, who would have known? And you know, of course, I think we used to know, (laughs) but we've sort of lost that information to time and to convenience. And it's fun to sort of reintroduce people to some of those concepts again.
0: So you have a, so I'm, I'm trying to frame a couple of different things. One is I'm fascinated with your work in a lot of ways. One of the ways is that the, the wonder you create in others. Um, my first experience of this was just looking at the um, I can't remember the name of it, but the, with the purple ferns and out in the woods and the, uh, looking at the photos of that and the guests that were there. And for me, it was the first time I saw somebody create a sort of a, it felt like a fantasy and it felt like it was grounded in, reality but a reality that most people don't see
1: i'm really glad that you say that because that's totally my goal with these events so that makes me happy
0: (laughs) well because and and that's what that's what caught my attention is is you were creating something that it's almost like an alternative history or future or culture that you can step into that people can go experience and i wondered if you've fallen, uh, followed up with people who have had those experiences, or do you have people who follow you for a long time?
1: You know, I, I rarely reach out to the people, but they find me. Um, and I've I've actually made a, quite a few friendships with people who've found my invitations hidden in the woods. Um, I actually, such a heartwarming moment happened the other day. I was doing a, just, you know, selling my work at a handmade arts show here in Boise and one of the women who came to my last event Ember had seen she follows me on social media now and she'd seen that I wasn't feeling very well my health condition was flaring up so she came to the event and brought me this big yellow fuzzy soft blanket and said that you know we need to you look like you needed something snuggly and comforting and it's it's amazing how it really does come back to you that the people who come to these events often, you know, show me their appreciation in a lot of different, really kind, caring ways. And I, I feel really blessed that I'm able to do these events because I think that I get to see a really good side of humanity. And I love it when I'm able to share that and, you know, give other people some hope in the world. Because, you know, people really are, amazingly good when they're in a situation where they can be
0: one of the things that we explore often in this podcast is the idea of relating to other people and and even relating to the natural world or relating to the larger systems around us i feel like in some ways uh, the work that you do helps people achieve that
1: Mm mm-hmm well, I think part of why I was so drawn to working with food in the first place is that, you know, food is the center of community. When you think about any, you know, meaningful ceremonies or celebrations in any particular culture, so many of them center around some kind of feast or some kind of, you know, food or beverage-based ritual, like the the Japanese or Chinese tea ceremonies or... You know, what What would a, a Western wedding be without a wedding cake? It's all, it's all sort of the center of what brings us together. And I think that, you know, goes way back to our ancestral history as hunter-gatherers when a feast was a celebration of hard work and bounty. And it was something, you know, in today's modern world, it's, it's very easy for most people to, you know, go buy enough food to make themselves feel full or maybe too full on any given night. But, you know, food, food's history as a scarce resource, I think still holds a, you know, still gives it a power today of, of generosity, luxury, and community. And all of those themes are really fascinating to me.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the business. I'm going to transfer. So, how important has the social media piece been, been to your work, or been to how you do your, how you're able to fund or engage in the kind of work you want to do?
1: So my the way that my structure works is that I have a Patreon account, um, which is a social or it's a, a crowdsourced funding platform where people can pledge X number of dollars a month like you know say okay i like what you're doing i think it's cool i'm going to send you $5 a month and um that that patreon funds the costs of my events so things like any ingredients i need to buy you know rentals any equipment etc and i don't take any of the patreon money for myself it's it's really important to me that the events themselves be gifts and that you know, it feels, it would feel like a conflict of interest to me if I were to accept payment for them. But I make my living afterwards by selling the art pieces that I made for the events. And I think of them as artifacts. You know, they're, they're from an experience. There's something bigger than just a nice object on a shelf. They were, they were part of a bigger picture. So I sell them with a, um, Each one comes with a certificate of authenticity stating what event it was part of. And I I would hope that the people who purchase them, you know, can can know that they are supporting something a lot bigger than just the physical art piece. So um, social media is a pretty important part of that puzzle for me because without um, reaching out to other people, I can't get enough funding on Patreon to be able to pay for the the cost of events and I'm going to do the events regardless, but the more I make on Patreon, the you know less I need to eat ramen for three weeks straight.
0: <laughs> and we will, uh, we'll link to your Patreon page and give people access to all that stuff so they can easily click and find you. So how many of these events do, have you done and how many are you like, what's your ambition for, for moving forward?
1: Well, so I've, I've done, um, quite a few events, I, I can't, uh, maybe in the ballpark of 15, rough estimate. But I used to charge for them. And um, last, last winter, I got sort of burnt out, I found that, um, you know, I would have to charge a pretty significant ticket price to be able to cover the costs of, you know, permits, space rental equipment. And I found that really, that really limited my the this, this sort of guests that I would get because, you know, most of my artist friends cannot afford to spend $150 on a dinner. And even charging that, I still, you know, I would make, like, maybe $200 per event, which would be, you know, three months of work, which, you know, that's not sustainable at all. <laughs> um, and I, I found that I was sort of dumbing down my ideas to make them more accessible, to turn them more into, you know, a fancy collaborative dinner or, you know, a multiple course event. But I, I I felt like I was losing some of the whimsy of being able to design a ceremony and large events for like forty people meant that I also had to dumb down my art designs. You know, I made I made enough plates for 40 people to have three courses off of them over the course of several months. And while that, the, I'm proud of how the plates were made and, you know, they're high-quality plates, they're not as exciting to me as being able to spend, you know, three hours meticulously sculpting barnacles on one cup. But I can't make <laughs> <right>. 40. <laughs> 40 barnacle cups. So uh, when I was feeling burnt out and like, what am I doing? How am I going to make this work? I decided to just do one event for free, just for fun, no pressure. And that's when I did that purple fern dinner that caught your eye um, in Eugene, Oregon. And I used artwork that I'd already made. I cooked dinner for 12 people, so the grocery bill wasn't too high. And I you know, I put it out there, I what I did is I got, um, got ferns, painted them purple, and wrote invitations on them, and then hid them out along popular hiking trails. And my goal was to attract the kind of person who's curious enough to say, whoa, weird, that, that fern is purple, why is that? And go look at it closer, and then be adventurous enough to say, oh my gosh, a secret dinner party? Yeah, I want to be part of that. And so what it meant is that the the guests at the Purple Fern dinner that I did were all adventurous and curious and just a fascinating group of people. And I had so much fun that night serving them. So then I I put the photos online. And, um, you know, within a couple of hours, I started getting more, like literally more responses than I could even keep up with reading. All of these heartfelt messages and comments, people telling me that they'd been having a really rough day and just seeing that there was this magic in the world made them, you know, believe in the goodness out there or, you know, people who wrote me messages in tears saying that it it had such a meaningful impact on them. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I I cooked dinner for 12 people. Like, this is not, it didn't seem like that big a deal to me. But then I realized that, you know, we're, we are encouraged to stop believing in magic and that's, that's really too bad, you know? Like, why, why do we have to stop believing in magic? That's stupid. So I, my, my goal with my events has, has taken on a whole new life. It's been to create these sort of mythical, magical experiences and, And those, you know, of course, are meaningful to the people who attend the events. But I I found that they're also meaningful to people who just see them (laughs) or hear about them as I mean, you're a good example of that. You weren't at the event, but it caught your attention.
0: Yeah, I, I really like the idea of I'll be out walking in the woods and I'll turn over a leaf or a interesting fungi or something and see an invitation to a dinner party for some reason that just that it that is magical it it is it is a you know you read about things like in harry potter or fans of of i think science fiction or 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 fantasy where you do get to step out of your day-to-day life in a way and people I think are looking for those opportunities. And that dinner party in particular was a real example of doing that. And and what's more, what interested me in addition to that wasn't just the magical piece, but that it was tied to the natural world. And it seems like that wasn't necessarily just a single moment for you, but that, that's something that, that weaves throughout your work. Um, talked about the you know the way that you look for food um your experience with that how that works one of the things that i've sort of wondered about is yeah maybe a connection to place um you seem to be inspired by the regions of the northwest or various things what have you found maybe even what recently is inspiring you
1: so Probably my favorite word, or like at least top five, is the word terroir, which is often used in wine tasting to mean the taste of place. And it's, it's sort of this all-encompassing word of, you know, if you're using it in wine tasting, it means the soil that the grapes were grown in, the specific types of grapes, the climate of the region that they were grown in, the traditions that went into making that wine the winemaker's own like special you know techniques or ways of doing it the oak that it was barreled in so it's sort of this all encompassing word for everything that goes into making this taste this specific way and that word i think is is a beautiful reflection of what my goal is with my work to capture the way this specific area feels and tastes and, and, you know, what emotions it evokes in me. And I, you know, I grew up in the woods, like fairly solidly in the woods. Uh, When I was a kid, my parents worked on a fire lookout in the summer, which was like a, an hour long drive and a four mile hike over pretty steep mountain ridges. And uh, we started doing that when I, I think I was like five or six so in the summertime, we were at this, you know, little building in the middle of nowhere with, you know, no running water, definitely no internet or anything. And, well, not that internet was a huge thing at the time, but um, yeah, it would just be my parents, my sister, and I. And my my parents had to scan for fires, you know, on a, on a regular basis. I think it was every twenty minutes or every half an hour. So my sister and I were sort of on our own in terms of finding ways to occupy ourselves and what that meant is that we spent all of our time outside and indulged our imaginations quite a bit in you know developing our own fantasy worlds woven into the the high the Idaho high desert and scrubland and like the high altitude um pine trees so i think that the, the more work I do, the more I realize how true to me this specific kind of work is. This is, you know, this is who I am. I'm I'm a, a forest girl, like through and through.
0: <laughs> so Betsy, what do you think is one of the most harmful things we are doing today, but we don't
1: realize? I think one of the most dangerous things that we're doing today is drifting away from nature, which, you know, it sounds like a really kind of hippy, dippy, cheesy thing to say, but it, I, you know, I've I've been amazed at how many people I've come across or or worked with even who are so sort of oblivious to where the things that we use and we eat come from and you know it's it's really easy to be oblivious when you're used to chicken arriving in a plastic wrapped package or you know your your furniture coming from Walmart but it's a really you know it's, a, it's it's a therapeutic activity for me to go out and forage my own food and remember that I'm connected to it and I think that that just that activity of engaging with nature a little bit more deeply makes me a lot more aware of the ways in which I'm consuming products than a lot of people. And so the, the more we can focus on, you know, remembering relationships, our, our relationships to each other, our relationship to place, our relationship with nature, the more respectful we can be to everyone and everything that we're sharing space with. So I think the most I guess to to sort of wrap that up, I think the most dangerous thing that we're doing is allowing ourselves to exist in bubbles and to not, you know, wander outside of those bubbles nearly often enough.
0: And we might need Wondersmiths to help guide us into different bubbles of reality. So um, I really liked what you're talking about there too around therapy or foraging as therapy in a way. Um, I, if you don't know, I do this for the last about 10 years been consulting in this field called biomimicry. One of the biggest impacts I've seen on people has been getting into the practice of going out in the natural world and observing and that that is actually a therapeutic thing. And so it was interesting when you just said that you feel better when you go out and forage or when you um get to experience that terroir. Um do you have a regular practice of getting outside?
1: Um I don't have like a specific schedule or anything, but I try to spend a few hours out in the woods at least every week. You know, it's sometimes of year are a little bit crazier than others. Um but I do try to make it a priority. And as a self-employed artist, I find that I work really long hours and I work all the time because I can't just take, you know, say, okay, five o'clock, heading home because I you know my work is with me everywhere I go. And I have a hard time just sort of relaxing, like doing doing something for the point of self-care. and i I find that foraging is a really great. Um, intersection of those two things because while I'm out in the woods and I'm foraging, there's like a purpose to it. And I feel productive enough to not feel stressed or guilty about taking that time for myself. But then I can also, you know, wander around in the woods for three hours, which is a very calming, centering, wonderful feeling. So I I think part of the reason I'm so into foraging is that I'm just way too much of a workaholic.
0: (laughs) Hmm. That's really interesting because I do the same thing, but with like photography assignments or I have to have some purpose. I can't just go out and enjoy a walk in the woods, kind of. I have to look for mushrooms or be on a photo series where I'm trying to do something for work or... To get me out and to be able to be excuse the absence the or the indulgence, um, but it is something that I think is challenging because there are other cultures that do value just forest bathing, for example, in Japan. Um, just being able to go spend time to be healthy, or if you're feeling a little run down, that's a prescription. And I think coming up with ways that we can maybe allow ourselves. To do that can be really helpful.
1: Definitely, I you know our our culture, especially here in North America, is so productivity focused that I think we place um, productivity and financial success and business success over actual happiness. And I've you know I've got some pretty severe chronic health issues, which is another reason that I'm a full-time artist is it's really hard for me to have a normal job. And um, I've learned over the years that if I don't listen to my body and rest when I need to rest, I'm going to get so sick that I almost die. And, And, you know, that's a frustrating thing for me to struggle with. And it's, you know, I definitely wish that I didn't have to, but I think it has also given me the opportunity to really pay attention to how to take care of myself in a more holistic sense, rather than just, you know, okay, I got a promotion at work, but I come home and feel uninspired and go straight to bed and wake up every morning like a robot. So finding, you know, finding that balance of of being productive but being healthy in every sense of the word is something that I think we all struggle with. I, and I, and I'm not sure that I'll ever have it totally figured out, but you know, it, it gets gradually better and better the more I pay attention to it.
0: <laughs> so another question on my list, if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then back, where would you go?
1: Um, Well, I think that where I would go right now is probably, like, several leagues down in the ocean. Because I've been really obsessed with the underwater worlds that are just sort of beyond our comprehension or beyond our understanding. And, you know, because this is a vague question, I'm going to make up some different rules that I would also be able to, you know breathe and function underwater <laughs> Uh huh. totally cool um I every time I go out and look at the ocean I just think about how many mysteries are laying beneath those crashing waves and how if you can just get down deep enough the water would be so calm and still even if there was this huge you know hurricane on the surface and I I have actually had a lot of lucid dreams this year about that very place that that calm underneath the chaos and that you know world of mysteries and lost treasures and you know secret you know new landscapes, mysterious new places to explore new um, new flora and fauna and alien like life forms who knows what's down there really
0: it is alien life the um that was one of the things that just blew my mind when i took an invertebrate zoology class was that something like 90% of all species live in the ocean and 90% of those are invertebrates and so the just the sheer diversity of life most of it are these strange creatures that are nothing like us that live in the ocean
1: yeah and it's interesting that so many of those you probably wouldn't even see with your naked eye you'd need you know microscope to even comprehend what's there and that's another thing that i've been thinking about a lot this year is sort of um macrocosm and microcosm how so many patterns repeat at different scales you know, you can zoom in and look at a pollen grain and see the divots in the surface and think, wow, that looks a lot like the moon, you know, this whole planet that has these asteroid pockmarks or, you know, the, the structures of things living in clusters and then zooming out and seeing that, you know, maybe the all of the planets in our solar system are just part of some big cell of something bigger and how... You know, I I think we think of, like, new worlds to discover as something in our own scale. But changing scale completely changes how much we know and how much we have yet to discover. I mean, I'm sure you think about that, the, the functionality of certain natural patterns, like, for example, the honeycomb structure, you know, being something that could be the size of honeycomb or the size of a bookshelf.
0: Yes. I mean, that's a huge part of the kind of work that I'm um, excited about and constantly share with people. Um, In fact, my microphone is sitting on a book called Patterns in Nature, Why the Natural World Looks the Way It Does by Philip Ball, which is uh, a fascinating book. But yes, one of the things that drives my curiosity is seeing these patterns in the natural world at multiple scales and why are they there what is the physics behind it what is what is going to happen with these different structures how can we use them or think about them so that they're helpful for us um or so that we can contribute to the larger systems in a way that's useful and so that's that that's definitely you know, being curious about those patterns, looking at them, searching for them. And they're they're everywhere. And by that I mean things like why do trees and river systems and lightning all have that same sort of pattern. Um, there are really great theories and physics behind all of those for why those occur. And so people have started to develop computer systems or generative art or ways that we can think of, use those patterns or engage with the, the, those patterns for our own ends because a lot of times i think our own tech technology ignores a lot of the natural world ignores a lot of these patterns that are useful and so it's it is it, it is a central part of a lot of the work that i that i do
1: and I think that that curiosity, you know, asking those questions, that's a really important thing to, to think about. You know, why is that that way? Why does this work the way it does? Why do I keep seeing this pattern repeat? And, you know, as either a scientist or an artist, those questions are often the beginning of a huge exploration or a huge body of work. You know, I, th- I think about those sort of questions all the time.
0: <laughs> well, and that's been the biggest discovery for me in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years is that it's not actually about the answers. It's about asking the questions. And so a lot of the value that I've found is that, you know, I can help provide lots of solutions based on looking at the natural world, but it's really how do you, how do we help people ask questions, um, and I think that's something that both you and I do.
1: Yeah, so I I often um, think about the different ways that people see the world. Like when I'm out in the forest, I am three inches from everything. Like I I love looking at the tiniest little details. You know, the spores on the bottom of a mushroom or the stalks coming up out of, you know, a bed of moss or the tiny little feathery bodies of a barnacle. And it's really funny to go hiking with some of my friends because I will, like, completely miss the, like, beautiful mountains in the distance or the sunset or, you know, the waterfall because I'm too busy, like, looking at a barnacle. And I think that 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 difference in scale gives me a really different perspective than you know, the the group of people who don't see the barnacles but they see the waves crashing or the immensity of the ocean. And with with my work, I, I tend to gravitate toward those sort of really um, detailed designs which I sometimes magnify or draw attention to in different means. So, well, I know that I can never compete with mother nature in terms of beauty, like she's always gonna top me, Uh, It's a really fun challenge to interpret that inspiration in a way that will get people to pay more attention to the natural world. For example, I'll make, you know, I made some uh, glass platters with homemade millefiori, which is um, you make a a pattern in glass and then pull it out like taffy till you get glass rods about the thickness of a pencil and then you can slice that up. So I, I did that to create all of these really, um, delicate little star shaped designs or, you know, moss inspired patterns and created these platters. And I've had a few people who've seen the platters say, I never thought of as moss, of moss as being so full of designs and patterns, but I guess I've just never looked close enough. And that, those kind of comments are really rewarding to me because that's one of my goals is to say, like, look, this is here. Just, just get closer to it. And sometimes people, you know, sort of forget to live life three inches away. But I think my the gift that I bring to my artwork is getting people to zoom in a little bit more. And you need both of those things. You know, you need big, beautiful, dramatic landscape paintings to remind people that the big picture is gorgeous, too.
0: It reminds me of a story that often happens with people who go on a week long biomimicry excursion out into the woods. And this is often people who haven't been in the woods very much. Um, and the first day, they take pictures of the mountains and the oceans and the big, big vistas. By the third or fourth day, they're taking close up images of moss and slime and looking at these weird things because. I think you're right. Like, the scale of wonder, it, it does, the the immensity of mountains and huge trees does impact us first. But as we get a little bit more curious and start looking, we realize that there's wonder really far down the scale. And, and I wish all the time that we could see even smaller. Um, and so, like... I have a dream that one day we'll be able to put on little goggles where we can zoom into the molecular scale. And then I probably won't ever leave an inch when I go out in the woods because I'll just be looking around in the dirt.
1: But what a a beautiful thought that is, that you know the the beauty and immensity found in a view of a dramatic landscape of mountains. And then you zoom in and see the beauty found in a square inch cluster of moss or lichen. And then that allows you to think like, this whole beautiful scene is composed of wonder at that scale and i think that that makes the landscape even more beautiful and even more meaningful to to recognize the beauty at every scale and that it's it's this huge i you know in in at least to us it's this huge view of infinitely sparkling beautiful little components so I I definitely see what you're saying about how like the first thing you notice is the dramatic view but then you zoom in but the more I zoom in the more that big dramatic view becomes more and more just like breathtaking
0: yeah to imagine the world is full of that much wonder
1: Mm -hmm. just
0: brings a smile to my face
1: I remember when um, we first talked about bacteria in biology class. And, you know, at first I was, like, totally grossed out when I found out how much bacteria is in my body. But then I I started reframing how I thought about it. And now I think of it as, like, my body is the whole universe to something. Like, <laughs> one square inch of my digestive system is Everything some tiny little microscopic bacteria has ever known. and that itself is a pretty crazy thought. You know to think to think that you are composed of you that you are a whole universe. Like what a beautiful way to find more ways to love your body.
0: That's one of the things that I think is going to change or that 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 is an interesting need in the world is that people are grossed out by the microbes on their bodies and they've attacked them for, you know, and we've been killing everything rather than trying to provide a home for it. And what you just said, I think is a really powerful framing for rethinking our own health.
1: That is a really good point. I think I definitely agree that that is one of the most dangerous things we're doing today is just trying to kill everything you know instead of instead of thinking it of as like no if i can get more of the good guys they'll fight the bad guys off i don't want to kill everything i don't want to you know bomb this planet that is my digestive system or my body or my skin it's yeah i'm hopefully our, our future shows much more nuanced and thoughtful approaches to uh, the flora and fauna of our bodies and just in the world in general mm-hmm. you know you know that can be applied at, at a larger scale with you know the heavy pesticide use on monocultures or
0: yeah no and it's totally how we treat everything right uh, we kind of go with the the approach of if it's not working for us let's just kill it and rather than trying to encourage the the partners, the helpers, be part of the bigger system. Um, I think we're starting to see that.
1: That's sort of our current model is like, oh, here is a forest. We better cut it all down and kill everything and then plow the ground and then plant something new. And that seems like a very um, kind of brutal approach to agriculture or to our bodies or, you know, to any of our systems of life these days.
0: Right, it's not a very elegant approach. Um, and there's less wonder in it, maybe. Definitely. Okay, I have another question, which is... When do you feel most connected to the world?
1: Oh, that's that would definitely be after, like, three or four hours of foraging, slash hiking, slash wandering, and sitting down under a tree with my bare feet on the dirt and just closing my eyes and feeling at the same time so tiny and so huge.
0: But if you were able to splice in a gene or, or, or put in a characteristic from any other organism on the planet into people, what would it be and why?
1: The characteristic that I most want right now is gills, the ability to breathe underwater. If you'd asked me a couple months ago, I probably would have said wings, but both of those represent a a door to a a world beyond my understanding, you know, an, an ability to explore a realm that I don't have access to as a human. So, I, you know, I'd take either, gills or wings, or maybe both. I'd, I'd be happy with either of those.
0: <laughs> Do you scuba dive or snorkel?
1: Um, I have snorkeled before. I've never scuba dived. It's, it's funny because up until this year, I really haven't been drawn to water all that much. Like, I love tide pooling. My my love has definitely been for the intertidal zone, that amazing landscape that is sometimes land and sometimes water, and everything that lives there looks so delicate, but has to take such a beating with, you know, big waves crashing on shore. But just this year, I've been, you know, thinking about what lays at the depths of the ocean a lot more, and... This is really the first time in my life that the thought of spending any period of, like, extended time underneath the surface of the water has sounded at all appealing.
0: I think tide pooling is one of those things that it is the entry point. It is the sort of the easy, accessible, amazingly complex, beautiful way to start seeing into the ocean.
1: It's the gateway drug.
0: Yeah, Definitely the gateway drug. Snorkeling is the next step in. I found that scuba diving kind of at the same time that you feel immersed in a way that you can't in another way. It it also is a little bit separate because it's so clear and technical that you're breathing air underwater. Um, And I imagine being in a submarine might actually in some ways be more natural. Cause you're breathing normally and you can just see things. So I have a friend who did the deep undersea submersibles where she got to go down deep into the depths. And she said it was one of those moments when she felt like she could, or she, she felt like she was part of the world in a way that was hard to describe because she could see all of those strange, amazing things deep in the ocean for several hours and then come up and be like was that a dream
1: one thing that i've been thinking about a lot lately in my artwork is is the concept of a threshold and um one of the most inspiring classes i've ever taken was a class on joseph campbell's theories about you know the hero's journey or the monomyth and for those that aren't familiar it's to break it to greatly simplify it it talks about how most great ballads follow the same structure of a story where there's a call to adventure there is a threshold that you have to cross you know there's a series of of trials and tribulations that lead up to some kind of climax and then there's a return home and i use that structure as a framework for the ceremonies i design for my events like the hidden invitation will be the call to adventure Traveling out to the location of the event is crossing the threshold, and then you know, I I design some kind of um, point in our ceremony or in our event that feels like a climax, whether it's a point of discussion or a point of play, or you know, just something that'll kind of be a point to work towards, and then you know, a return home, walking back out of the forest or walking back to your car or walking out of the door and leaving with the memory of something magical. So I, you know, I want that experience of, of people leaving the events and thinking like, was that a dream? Did that happen? (laughs) And I think that having a really specific threshold to cross is part of that, um, part of that structure. And my whole life I've really been attracted to thresholds. I think that's why I find the intertidal zone to be so endlessly fascinating is it's, you know, it's the gateway to the depths of the ocean, to this land, or, well, not land, this realm that we have yet to explore, yet to understand, at least not in the way that we can understand, you know, sitting on a rock on the beach. And I'm also, you know, I've also loved the area between meadows and forests where um, you get sort of this proliferation of specific plants that don't grow deep in the forest and don't grow in the middle of the meadow. They only grow in this sort of gentle swath in between the two. And so those, those two areas have always been the sort of um, biomes that I've been the most attracted to. And I think a lot of that is, is the desire to explore thresholds and to explore boundaries both in a physical sense and in a metaphorical sense. I mean, if you want to, you know, read into it, the threshold crossing is a journey into the subconscious and you know, into the, um, a, a realm that holds answers that maybe you don't consciously know.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. One of the things that, we talk about in ecology is the idea of an ecotone and that's exactly what you describe is the blending place between two biomes or two ecosystems when they come together is the ecotone and there's some interesting science behind where humans evolved and how we evolved that we evolved to really take advantage of ecotones and that that's where maybe our even like some theories around where our consciousness came from, because we're ability to adapt to change, to see these different things, to live in that really dynamic place, um, and that we create ecotones. And so it seems like you're really touching on a lot of very fundamental human things, like food, our, our, our innate interest in these sort of dynamic changes or thresholds, and and what that means to us and that it, it hits us very deeply.
1: Yes. And some of those some of my interest in that subject matter is completely subconscious or accidental and some of it is very purposeful. But I think the more I learn about humans and storytelling and structures that we relate to, the more meaningful my work gets. And I you know it's I'm never going to have the answer. Like, I'm never going to know all of it. It's I'm always going to be learning, and that's what makes it so much fun. But, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the different scales of things, and I think that that can definitely apply in a more metaphorical thing. I've been noticing the structure in the meals we eat and the performances that we attend and a lot of other sort of cultural experiences where there's, you know, there's some kind of introduction, whether it's, you know, the appetizers or the opening act. And then there's something that builds up to some kind of a climax, which is usually, you know, the, the main act, um, the main course, you know, the, the center, the, like, main part of the event, and then there's some kind of a wind down, which is like the encore performance or, you know, the coffee after dessert or, you know, the, the chit chat after a long visit with a friend and that that is such a human structure. That's a structure that humans are so familiar with because we see it around us all the time. And it's something that we might not recognize as happening because it just feels so natural and so with my events, I definitely try to use that structure as a tool to, to make people feel comfortable and safe and secure because it's, it's something that we don't just recognize but expect. And again, it, you know, it goes back to that wanting to balance um, taking people out of their comfort zone but doing so comfortably. And that is one of my best tools to make sure that, that the, the um, guests at my events feel that, it, it, that everything fits into place so that it feels right.
0: Oh, that's so important when you're trying to help people experience something new. There was two things. One thing was, have you ever heard of the idea of embodied cognition? It, it I, I learned about it from some design friends of mine. And it's the idea that if you're holding a warm mug, you're going to view the ideas or comments of the person you're talking to as warmer or if something's very heavy you're going to view it as more valuable so like the iphone doesn't need to be as heavy as it is but they made it heavy because then people think it's more valuable
1: yeah i definitely want to do more research on that and and actually i have done a lot of research on that kind of subject the way that presentation influences our perception um, there's a researcher by the name of Charles Spence that, it's, it's so funny that this comes up because I'm, I'm just starting to read his book called The Perfect Meal, and in it he explores all of the different components that affect taste and smell. Like, for example, something presented on a red plate will taste sweeter than something presented on a white plate, even if they're exactly the same, because... You know, in nature, things that are red usually mean that they're ripe and they're sweet. And things that are green usually mean that they're unripe and they're sour. Or the way that shape influences. Um, you know, a round plate is it has a perceived um, experience of sweetness. Whereas a square plate is seen as more salty. Or, you know, the food <laughs> presented on it. So I think about that a lot as well. Um, how... You know, you could be served a five-star meal, but if you're served it in, like, a gross, divey, weird location, it's not going to really taste that good. Or you could be served a fast food hamburger, but if it's presented in the right way with the right story behind it, it might be the most amazing thing you've ever eaten. So, as much as I would like to say that, like, I'm a good cook, and... I make good food. I think a lot of my my personal like happiness with the food that I make is knowing the story behind it, the way that it's presented and the environment in which I consume it. So that's that's why when I say, you know, I do these events I base them on experiences is it you know it is. It's not just a meal, it's a whole experience. The location and the setting are just as important as what people are actually eating.
0: Okay, so that led to my last question, which is, is there a book, a movie, documentary, any media right now that you're really excited about?
1: As I just mentioned that book, um, I also just finished 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which probably has definitely influenced my desire for gills (laughs) and for exploring the deep ocean. Um, But one of my favorite books that I've read all year is called The Futurist Cookbook. And it was written during sort of the high time of the Italian futurist movement. And I love this book so much because it is at once both exactly what I'm doing and the polar opposite of it. And to understand um, the context of the book, you have to understand the context of when it was written, which was during the Industrial Revolution. And at that point um, in Italy, the futurist art movement was all about speed and portraying, you know, fast trains and aluminum and shiny surfaces and masculine energy and bold, dark, industrial colors. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, if you've seen my work, is, like, directly the opposite of what I'm doing with my, like natural hues and organic forms but i love seeing the way in which these artists respond to the changing world around them and embrace it and the recipes in this book are hilarious they are incredibly conceptual and especially ridiculous and it inspired that's what inspired me to begin my series of work that i started this year called edible poetry where I create some kind of food piece with foraged ingredients and write a really poetic description of the inspiration behind it. That, that inspiration to do that project actually came from this ridiculous book written by Italian futurists, which sounds crazy, but it's like one of the most influential things I've read all year.
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: Do you want, so I don't know if you want to include this in the podcast, but I can read you a recipe from it if you want.
0: Yes, please. Okay,
1: let me grab it. My very smart little sister got this for me for Christmas last year. And I, like, hold up for two days reading it and didn't do anything. So let me find the recipes. Okay, this one is called Ultra Viral. On a rectangular plate, put some thin slices of calf's tongue, boiled and cut lengthwise. On top of these, arrange lengthwise along the axis of the plate two parallel rows of split of spit-roasted prawns. Between these two rows, place the body of a lobster, previously boned and shelled, covered in green zebaglium. At the tail end of the lobster, place three halves of a hard-boiled egg, cut lengthwise, so that the yellow rests on the slices of the tongue. The front part, however, is crowned with six cost combs laid out like sectors of a circle, while completing the garnish are two rows of little cylinders, composed of a little wheel of lemon, slices of grape, and a slice of truffle sprinkled with lobster coral." <laughs> like, what is that? Would you eat that? (laughs) That is amazing. Hell no.
0: (laughs) And I love how precise it is.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Um, Another one of my favorites is called Steel Chicken. It says, roasted chicken, emptied of its insides. As soon as it is cold, make an opening in the back and fill the inside with red zabaglione, on which are laid 200 grams of silver silver hundreds and thousands. Attach cox cones all around the opening. (laughs) Like that sounds disgusting <laughs> and it's just it's a it's a hilarious book and the the titles of the recipes are very poetic like dates in moonlight and alcoholic joust and spring paradox and captive perfumes so it it just shows that you know great things happen when humans both indulge in their imaginations and pay attention to what is happening culturally in the world around them.
0: Thank you so much Betsy for reading that. Those are great.
1: It just correct me up. I just spent the whole whole like 2 days after Christmas last year curled up in a corner giggling to myself.
0: So, for our listeners, where can people find you online?
1: Well, the best way to learn about um, sort of the structure of my art practice and what I'm doing is to visit my page on Patreon, which is patreon.com, and then search for Betsy Hines Wondersmith. Um, You can also find my website, which is just www.betsyhinze.com. I'm on Facebook. I have an artist page on Facebook, which is Betsy Hines Artist. And my art Instagram username is sand or sugar, with um. I don't. You you can put a link below, right?
0: Yeah, I'll put a link to everything. I was just gotta say um, I'm an avid follower on both Facebook and Instagram. I I love reading all of your posts. Yeah, so I'll put a link to all those things below, and I highly recommend everybody follow Betsy. Thank you so much, Betsy, for coming on the podcast and being part of this adventure with me.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm all inspired to go look up um, Ecotones and Embodied Cognition do a little more research.
0: And that's a wrap on Episode 9 with Betsy Heinz. You can find Life Centered on iTunes as well as on our website at lecolab.com. And if you like what you heard, please do take a moment to give it a thumbs up review or comment. It really helps us out a lot until next time. I'm Tim reminding you to keep looking for magic in your life. It's there.